This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This is the reason Christians make a difference in a world full of problems. But how do we do that? Well, we have God's word. And that can be, to be honest, a bit daunting. There's so many books. There's the Old Testament. There's, they're saying I don't have, no, it's on. <laughs> How about now? Thank you very much. I, sometimes I keep the I turn the mic off just to see Steve do jumping jacks in the booth. It's 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 really entertaining. Not my fault this time. But okay, so we look at the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament in the Old Testament, Pew Packers. How many books in the Old Testament? 39. Yeah, how many books in the New Testament? 27, right? And so maybe you're a daily Bible reader, but you know even if you're a daily Bible reader, there are some reading deserts. While beautiful and certainly worth the effort, they're a little bit difficult to navigate. Well, here's the good news. If we wanted to go to one place where Jesus uh, talks about how to make your light shine, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, or certainly that would make the, the short uh, list, but it's even better than that. In the Sermon on the Mount, if you wanted the five books of the law and the 17 books of the prophets crushed down into a single sentence, Jesus does that. And of course, many of you know I'm talking about the golden rule. It's in Matthew 7 and 12, where it says, Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Now, that is counterintuitive to a lot of the ways people think. It's, it's on collision with a lot of the way that people uh, th uh, thinks. And, and uh, in response to this, you've probably heard some variations about this various things, like do unto others before they do unto you. That's one. Uh, do unto others as they do unto you, but do it first, right? So, you, right? so, so these, are, these are too common. But the point, the whole point is, is here in the golden rule, and let's not miss this, for men, whiz, women, husbands, wives, is to serve and su to submit to one another. So if you're in any of those groups, tonight's presentation is, is for you. And just uh, to be clear, men are others. Women are others. Husbands are others. Wives are others. And for men and women... I'm kind of taking the Hebraic definition uh, uh, for this. So if you're a boy of 13 years and one day old, then this lesson is for you. If you're a girl of 12 years and one day old, because they mature quicker, this lesson is, is, is for you. And if you're younger and you want to join the party, well, you know, just come on. So we're going to start tonight in Ephesians 5 and starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And the word here for submit 
is the Greek word, word, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'll probably get the definition wrong, but it's hypotasso, hypotasso, which means to arrange oneself under or to be subject to someone in authority. And so uh, uh, a word picture of hypotasso might be a, a soldier in a military formation who's placing himself under the authority of his commanding officer. In this context, the soldier is willingly submitting himself to the authority of the officer and obeying his commands, even if he may not fully understand or agree with them. So to kind of paraphrase this, and this sort of comes from a Clint Eastwood uh, uh, movie, uh, Josie Wales, talking about uh, uh, jo uh, Josie makes this request, and, and Tin Bear says we already have that. Well, submission is kind of like that, that as well. We already have submission. That's true. God's not asking for anything extra. He's just giving wives life, and he's giving husbands life so that he can cut out the arguing. Some of you know I, I teach at a university, and, and so I'm, I'm teaching this training and, and development uh, class, and I had this uh, student. Uh, she had this, this really cool training exercise and where she takes some masking tape and she says we're going to do some team building and so she takes the the masking tape we'll see if this works it may, it may not but she takes the masking tape she puts it on the floor and she divides the teams or the people in the class into pairs and she says before you can get to the team building I want each in the pair to stand on each side of the masking tape. All you have to do is get the other person to come over to your, your, side, of the, your side of the tape. So that seems pretty simple. I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to work. And by the way, uh, we did this in our college and careers class. They did this in like 30 seconds. They were awesome. Not so with my university class. Um, <laughs> There's this football player, he's like six foot four, six foot five, six foot tall. He's just really, really tall. And his partner is, is this girl, she's like a brilliant girl, but she's like five foot nothing. And, and, and he stands on one side of the, the line, and, and of course she's standing on the other side of the, uh, of the line, and he says, okay, you need to come over on this side of the line. And her face turns red, and she says, I'm a little strong-willed. I don't know if I want to go on the other side of the line. And, and he says, no, no, you just need to come on the other side of the line. And so they go back and forth, and, and finally she relents and goes to the other side, uh, side of the line. But the other group, they keep arguing, and they never relented, and time ran out. They just couldn't find a way to move that 24 inches to get the other side of the tape. So if we're kind of trying to apply the golden rule, if we're going to treat others as we would be treating, then we really shouldn't be arguing about, should I go on the other side of the line? We actually should be arguing about, well, let me come to your side of the line, right? And, and well, that might cause problems, too, because it's like, let me come to your side of the line. No, let me come to your side of the line. And so arguing ensues again, and, and God says, okay, hold on. Stop the arguing. Let me give you a good plan. Wives, you get to go to the other side of the, uh, the tape. 
and I know women, what you're thinking. You're thinking, I get to go to the other side of the line. <laughs> Don't gloat, okay? Men, if we get the golden rule right, if we get Ephesians 5 right, we should be a little bit bummed that God picked her to go the 24 inches to come across the line and not us. So let me give you the, the main points and then we'll get into the topic for tonight. We need more women drivers in a bumper car world. First, you should know, and, and I mean you already do, life's hard. It's really hard. It's hard for husbands and wives. It's hard for men and women. It's hard for people in general. You bump shoulders with people around you. They don't respect you. They don't honor you. They don't encourage you. They don't mean to. Well, some of them do, but they don't mean to. But they're just so wrapped up in their own bumper car life that you're just a collateral bump, maybe even caused by something else that happened. And if we're going to have a place where the bumps are smoothed out, we need more women drivers. As a former bumper car enthusiast, I know there are several strategies and all sorts of drivers. They're the ones that floor it, hit the first car available, establishing chaos early and often. There's those that try to stay in their lane, get the circle of cars up to speed only to get hit quickly. And so, of course, you know what they do. They counterattack. And, of course, that breaks down the whole system. Um, there are others that try to get knocked off as little as possible trying to find out just how fast their car can go and also providing a hint of direction for the rest of the crew. But there are other kinds of depend, uh, uh, participants. There's some little princesses. They don't really know what they're getting into. Nothing's their fault. And they're in more trouble than they can imagine. But there are some noble women that are trying to protect their duck, ducklings because they know what's about to happen. And then there are guys that are watching from the outside because right at bumper car time, they had an uncontrollable urge to get a corn dog. So, yeah. So tonight we're going to just focus on the women drivers. And as, as we know, by most metrics, women just tend to be better uh, uh, drivers. Uh, they have, regarding safety, they tend to have fewer accidents. They have fewer traffic violations. They're more likely to obey traffic laws, wear seatbelts. They're less likely to drive under the influence of drugs and alcohol. They engage in less risky behavior, less speeding, less weeding in and out, less tailgating. They're more likely to drive cautiously. Uh, regarding distractions, they engaged less in distractions than men, such as cell phones and eating. Women tend to be more uh, cautious in navigation and planning routes. They're more likely to use the GPS devices. They follow directions carefully. So let's just make the point, women often tend to be better drivers, which means if we live in a bumper car world, and we do, we need more women drivers. And the Bible is full of great examples, women driving well, in conjunction with men, and, and sometimes in spite of the men that are, uh, that are around them. And so we're, tonight we're going to take the story of Sarah. So uh, if you'd like to, to meet me in, in Genesis 11, uh, we first see uh, Sarah in verse 29. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. 
Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, the wife of his son, Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So what do we know about Sarah, or in this case, Sarai, is, well, for one thing, she's one of the prominent women in the Bible. Sarai means my princess. Uh, she was married to Abraham, or in this case, Abram, and they lived in the Ur of Chaldeans. After Terah dies, God tells Abram to go to the land he will show him, and he takes Sarai. And another thing that we know about Sarai, she is a stunner. I don't know how else to say this, but if you go to Genesis 12, verse 11, uh, it just describes this. And so starting in verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, and uh, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So Sarai, I mean, she has a wealthy husband. Perhaps, you know, this beauty came from where she dressed really well to please her husband. And, and maybe even like Lot's wife and some of the other women are, and told her how great she'd look if she, you know, had some of the gold and the silver uh, 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 jewelry from Abram's re reserves. Uh, and we don't know if that's the case. And we know that there are certain levels or certain kinds of adornment that cause issues. So Abram tells Sarai, tell the Egyptians you're my sister, and she is taken to Pharaoh. And I'm not sure what the hierarchy is in, in, the, in the monarchy there. Maybe, maybe Sarai was so beautiful, she was outside the prince's league. You know, they're like, oh, okay, you know, outside our league. Or perhaps they're just opportunists. And they're going to just say, okay, we're going to garner favor with Pharaoh. And so we'll just tell him about this beautiful woman that we found. Whatever the case is, stunning women tend to have or tend to bring out stunning women collectors. And some of these do not have the best of motives. But some of them do. Uh, and I belong to that group. And <laughs> no, you probably do too. And, and, and you can test this. I mean, you know, husbands, look at your wife and either tell them, I am not a stunning woman collector. Or, <laughs> right. So it's not a bad thing to be attracted, uh, indeed, in committed to a stunning woman if she's stunning in the, in the right way. And so... Um, the good news, this all turns out well for Abram and, and, and Sarah. And, but while Abram had a plan, I doubt if it was the plan. 
okay? Put another way, uh, put another way is a plan is not always a good plan. So, kind of like this, another thing that we know about Sarai is that she's a problem solver. And she has this infertility problem, and, and, and she's impatient. Women get impatient sometimes. And, and you know how this goes, right? Uh, sometimes my wife gets impatient with me, and so I just have to remind her, you know, I heard you the first time when you told me that latch needs fixing. You don't have to keep reminding me every six months. So <laughs> Sarah gets impatient and Sarah was unable to have children. And this is a, a source of great pain for her. And so we're going to be reading in, in Genesis 16 and beginning in verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go into my servant, that it be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, as interesting as this sounds, at our house, and maybe yours too, there are, there are two different versions of this story. Uh, version one, uh, Sarah offers Hagar to uh, Abraham or Abram, and he says, well, okay. That's version one. I kind of have a different version of this. Uh, my version is where Sarah says, take my servant Hagar, and he's a little reluctant and he, I mean, it says that he lived in Canaan for 10 years, and maybe this has been going on for years, and he's being saying no, and then finally he relents and says, well, okay. I'm, it's unclear of which version's out there, but, you know, there you go. And so we know a lot of times in life when you have a plan, it's not a good plan that we should be executing. Some of you remember that I used to have this uh, little Miata convertible. It was a really cool car. I liked it a lot. But, but it was really dirty, and I wanted to take it to a car wash. But as you know, you can't take soft-top convertibles in a car wash because of the roof. So I came up with a plan that I would take it to one of those touchless car washes where there's nothing impacting the car except for water. And while it was a plan, it was not a good plan. The car wash was spraying the water sideways at the windows and successfully penetrated the passenger envelope. And so there was water pouring in from all sides. And I was, I was stuck there until it was finished. Now, the car got clean, but I wasn't in very good shape. And, and I, I learned from this that you should go with a good plan or you're often left cleaning up the mess. And by the way, I never tried this again. So we're going to continue reading in verse 4. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to you 
be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. A couple of things here. One, I think this kind of helps my case that Abram's a good listener. Regarding the taking of, of Hagar, she says, this is your fault. But even in that suggestion, Sarai is really saying to Abram, okay, you should have known better, but I want to know if you'll let me do something about this. And Abram says, you may. The other thing is, Sarai learned uh, from this, is that it's way more trouble cleaning up the mess and going with a good plan because she never did this again. So uh, we're going to move on a little bit, and we know that uh, Abram's name got changed, and he's the father of many nations. But we forget that Sarai's name was changed as well. And so we learn in the New Testament that she did not abandon God's promise. So Sarai means my princess, and Sarah means princess, but if you dig a little bit uh, deeper, it means more than that. It means noble woman. This is the name God gave her a year before she had Isaac. So in Genesis 17, and we'll be picking up in verse 15, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of people shall come for her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his uh, offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him gratefully. He will father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So Ishmael's going to be okay, and he's going to establish nations in his own, own right, but it's noble woman Sarah who's going to be the mother of nations, and the mother of kings, and that her line will contain the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so we see that Sarah's nobleness is not just in a name, but also an extension of who she was and by extension of that also who we should be so if we look in the new testament in first peter three and uh, uh starting in verse uh, one there likewise wives be subject to subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct do not let your there, your adorning the external, the braiding of hair and the putting of gold and jewelry or the clothes you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. A bumper car world sees this idea of submission and especially the idea of mutual submission as frightening and they should because it threatens the very chaos as they strive to maintain the collisions in their bumper car environment. Well, many of you know my wife is a stunner. And, and it doesn't come easily. I mean, she has to, she works on having a gentle spirit, and that's not easy when you have a husband that is sometimes foolish. And so she works on being an example, and I'm continually being one to a life that is less foolish. Likewise, she doesn't always understand my thinking. I would be foolish not to listen to her counsel because being a unified team is far more important than spending a lifetime of arguing on which side of the masking tape line that we are on. Last thing that we know about Sarah, well, for this evening. In Hebrews 11, and we're going to be starting with verse 8, we know that Sarah was faithful, starting in verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went into the land, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the immeasurable grains of sand by the seashore. And I'm not going to dwell on this, but there's only one miraculous conception in the Bible, and Sarah conceived, so there had to be some powerful faith in there, uh, you know, somewhere. So um, we've looked at Sarah this evening, but there's so many others. There's Aquila, there's Martha. We know for certain more named women at the crucifixion than men. The only men that we know that are named there, Jesus obviously, but aside from that, uh, Simon and John are specifically referenced. For the women, we know that Jesus' mother, Mary, was there. We know that Mary Magdalene was there. We know Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. We know that Salome was there. We know that a whole bunch of women that had been ministering to him were there. And these women made a difference in a world fraught with collisions and misdirections. So, what are the big takeaways for tonight? Number one, submission is not optional. And this is for men, women, husbands, wives, everybody pretty much. If you really believe in the golden rule, then it needs to be the rule 
and not the exception. Number two, a plan is not the plan. And so we need to make sure that our plan is God's plan and not just a plan that I put in, in place. And finally, let's just say it. Let's not apology, apologize for it. Let's be stunning and noble. Let's be stunning in a way that God wants us to be stunning so we can be a, a light in the world. And in case you missed it, we need more women drivers for navigation, for safety, for reducing risk. So this really hasn't been your typical kind of uh, sermon. But we, also, but we always want to extend an invitation so that if you want to be with God's plan, put Christ on baptism, we extend the opportunity. If you want to rededicate yourself, you've gotten off course, maybe you've gotten bumped around a lot. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's not your fault. But God says, I want you either way. If you fall into any of these groups, won't you come as we sing the song that's been selected?